0: Often it seems that the most difficult part of preparing for Rosh Hashanah is knowing what we're preparing for. Rosh Hashanah is is complicated, it's complex, it's elusive. In this, it contrasts really sharply with Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is simple, it's pure. It's profound, it's deep, but it's simple. One can reduce it to a, a simple core message. And the day contains no distractions. We're forbidden to to play, to work, to eat, anything that would take us away from the focused attention that Yom Kippur needs. Of course, it's not easy to attain the goal of concentration and focus on Yom Kippur, and that is the challenge of Yom Kippur. But in Rosh Hashanah, the challenge is figuring out what the focus ought to be. What is the appropriate mindset of of Rosh Hashanah? There are many themes, many thoughts, many emotions that seem to be found in the practices, in the liturgy, in the tefillah, and puzzling them out and piecing them together is a serious challenge. Uh, this is one of the challenges of being a Baal Tzfilah on Rosh Hashanah. There is no single right note to hit, no single emotion that's the right one that the congregation needs to feel at this point. There are moments of anguish, moments of dependence, moments of despair, moments of confidence, moments of triumph. Dr. Rudolph was a, a Baal Tfilah on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur and I never heard of Tfilah but I am told uh, by reliable witnesses that he viewed himself not only as a Baal Tfilah as a master of the prayers but also as a true Shliach Tzibur as an emissary of the congregation and uh, I have no doubt that he uh, was able to guide the congregation through these complex feelings and emotions uh, and he was able to guide them through the complexity of the Tfilah which really does reflect the complexity of the day This evening I'd like to explore some of that complexity. There are three different aspects of Rosh Hashanah that I'd like to uh, lay out and see how they work together. The three aspects are Rosh Hashanah as the first day of the year, as the day of the coronation of God, and as Judgment Day. These three dominate the liturgy and the experience of Rosh Hashanah, and the goal will be to try to explore how they interact. How they actually live side by side, and in fact, I'll try to to suggest how they um, how they lead one to the other. Let me begin by just passing out some some sources. let go all the way around. We I just pass it around. Let me get let me get more. You'll get one, don't worry. you could just pass these around. Thank you. Let's begin with Rosh Hashanah as the first day of the year. This might seem obvious, but in fact, it's not all that simple. The very first Mishnah in Masechet Rosh Hashanah says that there are four beginnings to the year. You have that Mishnah in front of you as source number one. There are four beginnings to the year. And the Mishnah then proceeds to list the four beginnings, the four months, which serve as a beginning for some purpose or another, and explain for which purpose each one is the beginning. The two that really most interest us are Nisan and Tishrei. The, uh, the first line, Bechad bin Nisan. On the first of Nisan is the new year, limlachim v'lregalim, for kings and for festivals. You have the first of Elul, Be'echad b'Elul, and Be'echad uh, betishrei, which is the beginning of the year for years, which seems uh, tautological, and for Shemitah and Yovel, as well as for Netiyah and the Yirakot, all the agricultural rules. And then finally, the first of Shvat, or according to Beit the 15th of Shabbat, which is the new year for trees. So how can we be so glib in saying that uh, Rosh Hashanah is the beginning of the year? Well, let's, uh, let's see if we can ask, why is Nisan the beginning of the year for some things, but Tishrei the beginning of the year for others? Let's take a step back. How did Nisan get to be the beginning of the year at all? Very good. What's the context in which that appears? When did that happen? It's Yetzirah Mitzrayim, the Exodus. So at least in, in biblical thought, it's tied to a specific historical event. As the Israelites are going out of Egypt, God says, good, now this is the beginning of the year. For whom? Ha-choresh Rosh For you, this is the beginning of the year. Makes sense. For you, this is the beginning of everything. The nation of Israel was just born. So it makes sense to begin, begin counting. Historically, there certainly is more to say about the calendar. Uh, and many of the calendars... The ancient Near East, Tishrei, really was the first month, but in some, Nisan did serve as the first month, and so there's, a, there's still a lot to be puzzled out. But certainly, the way the narrative in Shemot presents it, Nisan is the beginning of the year because that's when the history of the nation of Israel begins. Makes sense, then, that uh, there's the opinion in the Gemara, you have uh, right below this, that it's specifically not for all kings that we begin counting in Nisan, the comments, Lo shanu el Yisrael, aval umot mitishrei maninan. That this is only true that we begin counting kings' years in Nisan for kings of Israel. For the kings of other nations, we begin counting at tishrei. Why? Well, that makes sense. Nisan is, has been uh, distinguished by it being the beginning of the history of Israel. So for kings of Israel, one should start counting then. But for kings of Babylonia, for kings of Assyria, once you start counting at the natural beginning of the year, Tishrei. It's also specifically for Israel's national existence that Nisan counts as the beginning. That's when the nation of Israel was born. But there's still a natural year. There's still a, a point in the year when the world was born. And, uh, and that remains Tishrei even in the Mishnah. So although the, year, the, the kings begin counting their regnal years in Nisan, the agricultural year... The years for Shemitah, for Yovel, for planting, for vegetables, that still begins in Tishrei because that's still the natural beginning of the year. Now it's true, it's true that uh, in source number three, one has a debate in the Gemara, uh, a debate among the Tanaim, when exactly the world was created. The, the two opinions, as we might have guessed, are Rabbi Eliezer, Eliezer says that in Tishrei the world is created, but Tishrei in and lots of other things happened in Tishrei. Rabbi Yeshua Omer, b'nisan nivra That the world was actually created in Nisan. So according to Rabbi Yeshua, much of what I just said is, is false. It's not true that there's a natural beginning of the year, and that's obviously Tishrei, and it's only that the birth of the Israelite nation is in Nisan. Uh, and I'll admit that that's, that that's true, that Rabbi Yeshua probably would not agree. However, uh, we come down fairly clearly on the side of Rabbi Eleazar in our Tzfilot. We say over and over in our Tfilot, Hayom harat olam. On Rosh Hashanah we say over and over very clearly, Today is the birth of the world. Uh, so although it's true that in the Tanaim uh, certainly uh, debated this point, our Tfilot rule um, really very very clearly and unambiguously that for all, for our purposes at least, the world begins in Tishrei, and that's the way the Rosh Hashanah experience is constructed. Rikara so That's very interesting. Right. Uh I mean that's that's a, a excellent point. Uh khama, as you know, as was discussed inordinately amount <laughs> uh this year. Um you know, the practice as we have it is not that old. Uh so it's um, it's interesting. Uh, you're right that it's still very fascinating, but I'm not sure what the, what the evidentiary value of it is for, for kind of reconstructing rabbinic thought. Uh, you're, that's, you're still right that that's an exception to what I just said. But, um, but again, it's kind of a blip in the, uh, in this, the map of uh, rabbinic thought. But that's a very good point. It Uh huh. Interesting. Six months. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> uh, it's interesting. No, it is very interesting. Um, the, uh, the Gemara, at least, is, is a little bit uncle- un- unclear, a little ambiguous as to whether the world, meaning the first day of creation, is on uh, Tishrei, or whether, as you say, maybe it began a week earlier and it's, that man is created on, on Rosh Hashanah. Uh, so at least uh, in the debate as it's presented in, in the Gemara, it's is actually unclear. But you're right that both uh, both views are found. Absolutely true. Um, all right, but, uh, but again, I think... I think I want to focus on the experience of Rosh Hashanah as it's presented to us, specifically in the liturgy. And there, it's really, uh, despite all the, all the caveats and all the, the historical complications, uh, it's really quite clear that as we, as we dive in on Rosh Hashanah, we are emphasizing the fact that today is the beginning of the year. In fact, it's the beginning of the world. Given that, um, I think a second, a second component emerges, and that's that, then the anniversary of God becoming king. That might sound, uh, sound interesting. Uh, God's eternal, God's atemporal, God existed before all. And all of that is true. And yet, uh, in, a, in a really well-known tefillah, have Adon Asher Malach, Beteram, Kol Nivra, the master of the world, the eternal master, Adonolam. Who ruled, Malach, beterem kol nivra. who ruled, it's true, before there were any creations, before there were any creatures to be ruled over. And yet, nasa kol, When all was done by his will, then what happened? Azai melech then he was called king. Because until then, he might have, in some inherent sense, ruled, but there was no one to rule over. As he couldn't possibly have been called king. Uh, it's made explicit in a number of Midrashim. You have one in front of you uh, on the top of the next page. A, uh, a Tanchuma Midrash. It says, Bereshit Bara Elohim. And the Midrash is interested in the order of the words. Hashotim Omrim Elohim Bara breeshit. Fools say that God created the beginning, but it's not true. Ela, Amar Baal HaSvinah Nikra a owner of a ship can't be called the ship owner unless he has a ship, no matter how much he'd like to be a ship owner. So I cannot be called God unless I've created a world. Therefore, the Midrash says, that's the order of the words. First he created, then Elohim. Then he's God. So this is an even more Radical statement than we have in Adon Olam. Adon Olam says he's called king. The midrash says not only is he called king, he wasn't really God until he created the world. And so, granted now that in our in our tfilot, uh, we we claim that Rosh Hashanah is the beginning of the year of the world, it's the anniversary of the world's creation. It's also now true that it's the anniversary of God becoming king, or even more, as the midrash says, it's the anniversary of God becoming God. Now, if this is God's anniversary, what should he do to celebrate? One idea uh, might be that he should take a cue from Paro. Maybe not the most obvious idea, but, uh, but maybe he should. Recall what happens in the story in Breshit. And you have the, the, some of the key lines in source number five. when Josef, When Joseph is in prison, and he interprets two of the prisoners' dreams, these two prisoners Turn out to have been former officials in the court of Pharaoh, and they each have odd dreams. They both come to Yosef for the interpretation, and Yosef tells them both that in three days something's going to happen. In both cases, this is actually a, a uh, marvelous play on words. In both cases, et Roshecha. Pharaoh will lift up your head. Except for the first one, for the cupbearer, uh Paro et Roshecha Vahashivcha al Kanecha. Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your post. And the second one, in the case of the, of the baker, God will lift your head up off of you. And then he will impale you on a, on a pole. Uh, so that was a, a less cheery interpretation. But why in three days? What happens in three days? So there's obviously the symbolic, uh, in the dream, uh, the three that becomes the three days. But, uh, but the narrative then tells us why, three days later, all this happens. ashlishi, so it was the third day. That was the anniversary of Pharaoh being born. So he made a banquet for all of his officials, and he lifted up the head of his chief cupbearer and chief baker among all of his officials, and he ruled what he ruled. He killed one, he restored the other to his post, and, uh, and life progressed, except not for Yosef. What is, this, uh, what is this celebration? So it's Yom it at Paro. So he has a banquet. And we know something besides the eating and drinking that went on at the banquet. We know one thing that he did at the banquet. He decided to revisit the cases of at least some of his officials. But apparently many of his officials, the cases were reopened on this day. Now what really was this? So can we get behind this kind of on the Egyptian side? Do we know of anything like this? So the truth is that the birthday of the pharaoh, is not known to have been an, an important day at all. But the anniversary of his coronation was. The day that he became king, that day was marked with feasts and banquets. And it's been suggested by some Egyptologists who dealt with this passage, that that's understandable, and that could be called Yom Hulet the Paro. That's the day that Pharaoh was born. Why? Because Pharaoh, the Egyptian king, and probably the Israelite king as well, was believed to have been reborn when he became king, not as a mortal child, but as a son now of a god. Specifically in Egypt, as a son of Re, son of Ra. So he's, this is the anniversary of his being reborn as a divine king. And so the Yom who led not his original birthday, the one that his parents would have remembered, but his coronation day, the day that he became king. He celebrated that with banquets, and according to the story in Bereshit, he celebrated that also by opening the cases of some of the people who had been have been in prison, uh, ruling that some deserved a second chance and some deserved to be killed. I'd, <coughs> sorry. Uh, Chazal seemed to, to have made this connection as well. And you have some of these sources at the bottom of the second page. This is in Breshit Rabbah, uh, in order, on, in chapter 88. On the third day, the day of Pharaoh being born, it was Yom Ginuso Shel Paro. It was the day of Pharaoh's Ginosia. What is this, Ginosia? Nice Greek word. Uh, fortunately, the rabbis Chazal elsewhere tell us what Yom Ginosia of the king was. In the Gemara, in Avodah Azara, my Yom Ginosia Shel malachihem? What is this day of the king's Ginosia? Rabbi Judah says, The day on which the nations crown their kings. Yom she'am ma'amidin et malkam. So Chazal also knows that Yom at Paro was not his physical birthday, but rather the anniversary of his coronation. And Paro, at least, again, used this opportunity to, to judge his subjects, particularly the subjects who had already uh, shown that they needed to be judged. So given all this, it seems fair to say that first, the day of accession, the day where the king became king, was a day when the king was reborn as a god, or semi-god, demigod, Second, this was a day for pardons and punishments. And third, that the anniversary of this day was also a day for pardons and punishments. Now, I think uh, the line that we started quoting earlier, hayom harat olam, now the second half of that follows naturally. hayom harat olam, therefore, hayom amid bamishpat, kol yitzurei olamim. So since today is the day of the world coming into being, and therefore it's the day when God became God, it's the anniversary of his accession to the position of king and even the position of God. It makes sense then that he, like Paro, and presumably also like kings in Israel, although we lack the evidence for it, would have used the opportunity to be ma'amid ba-mishpat, kol yutereh him. Now he's going to revisit his subject's cases, decide. Do they deserve to be pardoned? Or do they deserve to be killed? I think that explains nicely why it's a day of judgment. Now, conceptually, I think this works out very neatly. Experientially, though, this is this is not so much a solution as much as a major problem, because saying that it's at on the one hand the anniversary of God's coronation, and the other hand a day of judgment, really presents us with an emotional problem. A day of coronation, happy day, joyous. We should be participating in the celebration. Day of judgment, day of awe, of dread. How do we now approach the day? This, I think, captures the uh, the real problem in the day. And this tension is found within the halakha, within Within the the, uh, the uh, what seems sometimes to be mundane halachic debates, this very deep emotional conflict about the nature of the day of Rosh Hashanah comes through clearly. For example, is one allowed to fast on Rosh Hashanah? Normally, on a festival, this is obviously not. It is, it is an obligation of ochel nefesh. Obliga- obli- I'm sorry, obligation of suddah, and uh, some say that that's why there's a is there uh, is permission to cook, uh, to cook food on, on the festivals. But some say that on Rosh Hashanah one is allowed to fast because it's true it's a festival, but it's also Judgment Day. It's also a day of dread and of awe. And so maybe, maybe one should fast. Maybe one might at least be allowed to fast on Rosh Hashanah. And in practice, uh, the majority of poskim say one should not fast, but the resolution is not the important point. The, the important part is attention. That it makes sense that there should be differing opinions. What is Rosh Hashanah? How can you boil down Rosh Hashanah? Is it fundamentally a festival? Or is it fundamentally a day of judgment? Not easy to decide what the, uh, what the right answer to that is. And in fact, I would suggest that the tefillah, the centerpiece of the tefillah in Musaf, when we have our, our nine brachot of Shona Eswe, the three middle and unique brachot of Shona Asway, that these incorporate... The first two specifically incorporate these themes The first one is Malchyot. We crown God All the verses are quoted about God as king About crowning him, about the people crowning him About remembering his role as king The second one then is Chronot. Now that we've crowned him as king He now pays very careful attention to what we've been up to And he remembers all that's been done and passes judgment And I'll suggest that, that, is a, that both are encapsulated in the third and at this, we can now turn to the really central uh, ritual of Rosh Hashanah, shofar. And, uh, and I'll suggest that shofar really uh, incorporates both of these. Sadio back a long time ago, um, listed 10 different reasons for blowing the shofar, 10 different significances of blowing the shofar. It's the first two, obviously the, the most salient ones that are of interest to us here. The first one, he says that we blow the shofar Just like one blows a trumpet when the king becomes king at a coronation. Or when the king appears. We blow the trumpets, we blow the shofar to crown God as king. The second one, to inspire the people to repent. I think these are exactly the two aspects of the day that we've been exploring. But far from being unrelated themes, there are two sides to the same coin. Because we blow the shofar in order to crown God, we then must blow the shofar in order to rouse ourselves to repentance because now God as king is going to open our cases up and furthermore I think that again, to turn to the halakhic details I think that this, these two sides to the, to the ritual uh, are reflected in a really well-known debate about the obligation of shofar this is a debate that's been discussed a lot is the obligation fundamentally to blow the shofar or to hear the shofar being blown? This goes back more than a millennium how long this has been debated. Uh, the first and clearest uh, source that, uh, that we'll look at is, is the Rambam, Maimonides. And the Rambam writes often and very clearly about what he thinks the obligation is. You have this in source number 9. In, first, in his book of the Mitzvot, Sefer Mitzvot, the 170th positive commandment, he should tzivanu lishmoa kol shofar, So we were commanded to hear the sound of a Shofar on the first of Tishrei. Again, at the beginning in his law book, in Mishnah Torah, in Elchot Shofar 1.1, It's a positive commandment to hear the cry of the Shofar on Rosh Hashanah. Unless you say, okay, but, you know, is he really being so careful in his choice of words? Maybe not. This is, after all, just a snippet. And the first one was actually written in Arabic. So who knows if this is really precise? Fortunately, he wrote a, an entire response an entire letter, uh, explaining how exactly he understood the mitzvah of shofar. And this is what you have at the bottom. Or just look at the English. The difference, he's addressing the question of the bracha that's made before blowing the shofar. What is the bracha that we actually make? The shmoa kol shofar, to hear the sound, the voice of the shofar. But some, some of the rishonim, some of the medieval uh, our rabbinic authorities, including not small people like Rabbi Nutam, um, one of the foremost Balletos vote, said that the bracha should actually be al tkiat shofar, on the blowing of the shofar. And the Ramam take addresses this head-on. So the difference between the formulations al tkiat shofar and the shmuel shofar is that the commandment which was required is not the blowing but the hearing. And one ramification of this is that the that ooh, sorry that had the commandment been the blowing each one of the males would have been obligated to blow just like each one is obligated to sit in the sukkah and take the lulav whereas one who heard but did not blow would not have fulfilled anything. In other words, one can't appoint a messenger to sit in the sukkah for you so too, he says, had the the obligation been to blow the shofar one could not appoint a messenger to blow on your behalf you'd actually have to take a shofar on your own but this is not true. Rather, the commandment is to hear, not to blow and we blow in order to hear. Just like the commandment is to sit in the sukkah, not to build it. And we only build it in order to sit in it. Therefore, we bless, we shave basukah, to dwell in the sukkah, and not lasot sukkah. We don't make a blessing to make the sukkah. Although he well knew that in the Yerushalmi, in the, in the Palestinian Talmud, there actually is an opinion that one makes a bracha to build the sukkah. But we don't. And we blessed with kol shofar, to hear the sound of the shofar, and not alt kiat shofar. Not to blow the shofar. The again, is, is very clear, both in his precise formulations that we saw earlier and when he uh, expa- expands on it, he's very clear that he understands the mitzvah to be hearing the shofar and not blowing the shofar. On the other hand, as I mentioned, people of, of no lesser stature than Rabbeinu Tam said that the bracha should be al-tikiat shofar. And uh, in fact, I, th- I think that, uh, it's probably already clear, but I think that this is symptomatic of the deeper a conflict about what the shofar is supposed to accomplish. If the fundamental point of the shofar is to crown God, then what should the obligation be? Blow. To blow. We're supposed to take part in that. We're supposed to crown God king. You can't just rely on the fact that someone else is doing it. It would be a poor coronation ceremony if everyone stayed home, but we said, look, look, we appointed someone to go to the capital and do it. Obviously not, a, not enough. So if the, if the basic theme of the shofar is to crown God, then the point then the mitzvah should be to blow the shofar. But if the basic point of the shofar is to rouse the people to tshuva, then what the Rambam says is exactly true. We have to blow it in order to hear it, but the basic obligation is to hear it. One has to hear the shofar in order to be, in order to be roused to tshuva. It's not surprising then that the Rambam, who focuses so much on the hearing, also is very clear about what he thinks the purpose of shofar is. In a, in a really exceptional passage in his Mishneh Torah, in his Halacha book, he takes a step back and says, what is the purpose of Shofar? And you have this in source number 10. The Rambam has, is very explicit about what he views as the purpose of Shofar. Alpha Shofar mitzvah, it's a commandment, it's a, so God said so, we don't have to ask about the reason, but remaz There is a hint. Not just a hint, but a five-line hint. Klomar. natchem, and So what is the hint? Wake up, you who are sleeping. Search among your deeds, return in repentance, remember your creator. Those who have forgotten the truth amongst the wastes of time and pass their years in nothingness and emptiness, which cannot help nor save, look into your souls and look at your ways and habits and let each abandon his evil way and his thought which is not good. So according to the Rambam, who emphasized the the hearing, the Shmiah, what is the point of Shofar? Not crowning God at all. So how you go and said that? But the Ramam drops that. For him, kind of predictably, the point of shofar is to rouse those who are sleeping to do tshuva. Now, if we look at the dispute itself, and we say, well, you know, well who's right? Is the obligation to hear? Or is the obligation to blow? Which one, which one is correct? So How could we resolve this? So the, the way that uh, disputes like this are traditionally resolved is that you look to the to the laws. And you say, well, which, which way does the laws do the laws make sense? So we look at the laws. We look at the, the laws in the Gemara. We say, you know, how can we make sense of the laws? Does it seem that the law is fundamentally to blow, or fundamentally to hear? So the problem is that there are proofs for both sides. For example, on the one hand, the Gemara says that one who blows a shofar into a bore, into a pit. So one blows, but does not hear. So, you hear, if you hear a voice, it's a combination of the voice of the shofar and an echo, has not fulfilled the commandments, not say. So, that seems to be a, a good proof that the fulfillment is that the obligation is to hear, not to blow, because there's a case where someone blew, just didn't hear. Excellent proof for the Rambam that, uh, that it's really all about hearing, not about blowing. On the other hand, a clear Mishnah says that uh, if someone who's not obligated to do the mitzvah, a minor, a katan, uh, blows a shofar with all the intent in the world and you sit and listen to him, you're not fulfilling your obligation. Well, turn to the Rambam and say, well, why not? Haven't you heard the voice? Haven't you heard the sound? It's a shofar. It's been blown. You've been awakened. You've been roused to do tshuva. What's wrong with this? So certainly, to some extent, there seems to be something about the blowing also. And uh, even if a, a bala as, uh, as wonderful as Dr. Rudolph uh, Blows the shofar for you But he doesn't have in mind That you're going to be fulfilling your obligation With this takiyah You're still not fulfilling your obligation He has to actually think about you Why does he have to think about you? Isn't the effect the same? Haven't you heard the, the cold shofar? Haven't you heard the sound? Why should you have to have this connection Between the, the one blowing the shofar The bala and the listener? So I think the, the kind of obvious resolution to this is that we shouldn't boil it down to a single answer that both the blowing and the listening are critical components to fulfilling the mitzvah of shofar that of course you need to have a a valid t'kiyah you need to have a a, a gadol blowing the shofar but of course it doesn't work if you don't hear it also because neither of them is entirely right the mitzvah of shofar is both to blow and to hear why? because of the two reasons that Rasa Adi said. Because one needs to first crown God, and for that one needs to blow, but then one needs to be roused to do tshuva, and for that one needs to hear. So perhaps the, uh, the resolution is to say, you know, we don't have to resolve this debate in the sense of ruling that one or the other is correct. They're both correct. The proofs from the Gemara are on both sides because one needs both to blow the shofar in order to take part in the coronation ceremony, and then to hear the shofar in order to fulfill the the obligation to be roused to do tshuva. Just to, to summarize this, and you have a summary at the bottom of the last page, I've argued that, we've argued that there are three different points which, when taken together, capture what, what I think kind of arises as the essence of Rosh Hashanah. Of course, the real point is that there is no single essence of Rosh Hashanah, that all three of these are fundamental components to Rosh Hashanah. First, the Rosh Hashanah is the new year. It's the first day of the year. Nisan is true, it's the beginning of the year, but only for the nation of Israel. When it comes to individuals, they fall back on the beginning of the world, and hayom harat So that's theme number one, the new year. Second, because Rosh Hashanah is the new year, it's the anniversary of God becoming king, and, if one may be so daring, of God becoming God, since prior to the existence of any subject, he wasn't really a king or even a god. And that introduces theme number two, that Rosh Hashanah is the anniversary of God becoming king and the anniversary of God's coronation. And this is the first reason for Shofar, to partake in the coronation of God. And finally, that kings in Egypt, Israel, Rome, celebrated the anniversary of the coronation as festivals and took the opportunity to review their subjects' cases, to decide what position he should have in the coming year. And that God, on the anniversary of his coronation, does the same. And this introduces theme number three, the judgment. And this is the second reason for blowing the shofar, the one emphasized by the Rambam, to call God's subjects to repentance so they can earn pardons on this day and not be condemned to death. Hopefully, this has all provided a a sense of the complexity of the day of Rosh Hashanah. It's not a simple day. There is no answer to how can we boil it down to its essentials. Uh, But hopefully what, what has emerged is that it's not a confusing day either. It's a complex and multifaceted day. To navigate the day, one often needs a guide. And the Baal Tefillah on Rosh Hashanah really has that job. In Yom Kippur, he has a different job. On Rosh Hashanah, his job is often to provide the right atmosphere for that moment in the liturgy, for that moment in the day. What should one be feeling now? Not that the day can be reduced to various stages, but that one needs to go through a number of stages, a number of processes during the day, in order to fully experience the day.